Just making sure we're recording. Making sure we're recording on this one. Hey, everybody. Mike and Tim here. Welcome to the Voxology Podcast. So glad that you are tuning in and uh, are grateful, as always, that anybody besides our immediate family listens to this thing. So thank you, uh, let alone the people who support us. Thank you to our Patreon and Tithely supporters. You guys are amazing. Thank you for um, adding or, or just saying that this has value for you. We're so very grateful for all of the ways um, that that we can expand and put a lot of time and energy into this, even though it may not always sound like it. <laughs> um, there is time and there is energy. And so Mike here, uh, Tim, Tim, give us, give us a thumbs up. This is what we used to do around the dining room table. Give us a thumbs up, thumbs down and thumbs medium from your week this week. Thumbs up, something good, thumbs down, something bad, thumbs medium. Yeah, it was something. Wow. We could, yeah. we do a high, low aha in our house. Give me your high, your low and something oh. you learned Ooh. or laughed at. Okay, I like that. Um, thumbs up. Man, you always yeah. catch me off guard while we're recording, and then my brain goes, floop. Well, yeah, you, you really want to script this part, Tim? Yes. You really want to script that this is <laughs> this is intended to feel like conversation. Oh, I see. Um, finished that and, bathroom remodel this week. The bathroom is uh, done. It has been how many months? Too many. Congratulations. Since you did like most mid-June. of the work yourself. About eighty percent of it. Yeah. So it actually looks nicer multi. than I imagined. Hey, the congratulations. That's gotta yeah. feel really good. It does feel yeah. good. Yeah. Um, okay. Thumbs down. Thumbs down. Kid had strep all week, which complicates life. It certainly it does. does, man. Yes. Yep. Thumbs medium. Thumbs medium. You know what else was a thumbs up? You're missing it. What? Ahsoka. It's really good. It's tying together like all this nerd lore and other things oh. together all in one. And they're doing a pretty good job with it. Is it over? As one more episode. Okay. So so I will watch. I will binge that. Cancel my Disney Plus subscription. <laughs> but Loki's coming out in a week. I don't care. I The MCU, the MCU has lost me forever. I oh, don't wow. care. Oh, wow. Jeez. Yep. I mean, I literally, there is one thing they've done, except maybe WandaVision, that since, you know, since the culmination of the first 22 that has been interesting. Now, I know, I know, and and I know that's blasphemous, and that's totally fine. But like, the Marvels, what is it, Miss Marvel or the Marvels coming out in November? Mm -hmm. No, don't care. Miss Marvel was great, though. That was a fun show. Didn't care. Okay. I'd be great. you say Turtles? Uh, well, wasn't it um, the ter- yes the teenage? <laughs> no, wasn't it the um, Eternals? Dork. Yeah, oh, well, Turtles because we just watched that the new Ninja Turtles movie and it's really fun. Okay, there was somebody in our YouTube comments who is a very sweet person who loves the podcast who just simply said, "Hey, could you timestamp <laughs> when it is that you guys start talking about something real?" And she probably this is real. For, she probably speaks for a lot of us. When it comes to that, like they're not tuning in for Tim's thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs medium, which I am like, we just, we, we show, we dial each other and then we just hit record. Yeah. Well, Tom Petty always said, uh, don't bore us, get to the chorus. Oh man. I've always, I've always said that when I've written songs. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, that's funny. 
anyway, so we've got a great email from one of our uh, patrons um, who gave us permission to read this. It is, it, it is a long one, but it, it raises something that I think is really good and, and something that we haven't talked a lot about. Um, Mike and Tim. Thank you for your ongoing study of Revelation. It's been some of the most uh, affecting explanation of the hardest parts of the Bible I've heard recently. Awesome. Your discussion on Monday, the 25th of November's episode regarding how we connect the perspectives of judgment in Revelation with the rest of the Bible and Jesus's example reminded me of a recent disagreement I had with a fellow Christian. I was hoping you could give some more direction on this. I recognize my question may be premature if you'll address it in the forthcoming episode about the martyrs, or maybe you did explain it in Monday's episode and I just didn't comprehend it. We were reading and discussing the imprecatory Psalms. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with that language, there are certain Psalms where the psalmist will say things like, God, would you dash the infants of my enemy would you dash those infants against the rocks? You know, would you destroy my enemy? And that could be someone, you know, that was a fellow Israelite who, you know, I'm thinking of David hiding in caves and wishing harm upon his enemies, or it could be Israel, you know, after uh, calamity has happened through the invasion of another nation, um, wishing that upon their other nation. So there is a category of Psalms called imprecatory Psalms where you're, you're almost praying uh, for justice to be done in terms of like wrath, God's wrath against evildoers. So we were reading and discussing the imprecatory Psalms, as you do with friends. <laughs> and <laughs> he asserted that the desire to see our enemy's destruction is a godly attitude. Mm. Um emphasizing a through line between those passages in the imprecatory Psalms, uh, the prayer of the martyrs in Revelation, and the wrath of God described by the prophets. So his argument is, yeah, wishing for their destruction is a good thing. We see that in the prophets, we see that in the imprecatory Psalms, and we're seeing it in the martyrs in the book of Revelation. He asserted that if we are faithful Christians who care about justice and the body of Christ, we should echo the prayers of the martyrs and also be calling for God's judgment to rain down on those who do evil. Otherwise, we aren't taking evil seriously and don't truly care about wanting to see God put the world right. That, for instance, we should feel a sense of satisfaction when a violent dictator is put to death. Wow. As you yourself said in Monday's episode, judgment is something we as Christians should be happy about and looking forward to. Now I'm going to clarify that because I did not mean it in the way, in the way that that's being heard. So thank you for forcing me to clarify that. Um, <laughs> what 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 is good about God's judgment isn't that our enemies are destroyed. What's good about the judgment of God is that that the people who have put their faith in Jesus will be vindicated, and part of the vindication is the judgment again of God against evil. No question about that. But I don't ever see God expressing um, a, a bloodthirsty desire to get even with his enemies. Now, there are some Old Testament passages that certainly seem like that, and certainly in the imprecatory Psalms. But as we've talked about before, 
the imprecatory Psalms are written not from God's point of view, but from a human point of view. Yeah, very important. And it is incredibly human to want our enemies destroyed. Yeah. Amen. But what I was suggesting that in, in like the New Testament, judgment is good news. What I meant by that is it, yes, it's going to be great to see your enemies destroyed. What I mean instead is to say, I cannot wait for the day where evil is undone, justice is overthrown, oppression will cease, and all of the tears wiped from our eyes. The problem with just wishing harm on my enemies is that that takes me out of the equation as a fellow sinner. And as someone who has harmed and has been an enemy to others myself. So let me just, I just insert that little caveat there. And then he goes on. He said, as a counterpoint to my friend's stance, I emphasize that Jesus taught us to love our enemies and pray for the redemption of those who do evil against us, not their punishment. You are absolutely right. That we should be following Jesus's example to ask God to forgive those who do evil rather than pray for God to smite them for their actions. Absolutely. This, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Absolutely. When we would rather bless those who persecute us than harm them, and we would rather love our enemies than to seek their ruin. You bet. Uh, he goes on. He says, not that we should let be passive in letting evil flourish. We talked about this. Yeah, this is totally Sermon on the Mount. Turning your cheek or lending to someone who asks, those, those aren't passive stances. Those are very creative imaginings of goodness uh, that we, again, talked about years ago. Um, but that Jesus taught us to break the cycle of violence and suffering and thus disarm the power of evil. It's, and the way that we do that is through sacrificial love rather than craving vengeance and desire for retribution. I couldn't agree with you more. You are saying the counterpoint beautifully. If we hope that God will give unbelievers their just desserts in a penal sense of justice, we will be less open to showing them God's love. Absolutely. There is no place where Jesus roots for the destruction of his enemies. Absolutely. But Revelation has me questioning if that's a correct understanding. If, if that's what you're getting from our teaching on Revelation, then we're teaching it wrong. Because what you're saying is being seen through the slain lamb. Yes, the martyrs are crying out for judgment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And judgment does come against Rome. No question about it. But is that something we're to be rooting for and delighting in when it happens? I don't see that part. Essentially, my question is, how should we as Christians read and understand this yearning for judgment against the wicked that is expressed throughout the scripture in light of the gospel? That's a wonderful question. So there you go, Tim. Go, go for it. <laughs> That whole thing to me, um, especially as my understandings of what I think sin and salvation, that kind of stuff have broadened or um, morphed a little bit over the last couple of years. I see that whole conversation as a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking again, because the peacekeeping, you would just want things to be is it smited or is it smote? Yes. Exactly. You would want that to happen because you want to keep the scales balanced and be like a keeping of the peace and the peacemaking, like forgiveness, 
walking with yeah. your enemies, loving your enemies, like that is such an active stance. Yeah. And yeah. so I just see that at the root of that whole thing. You know, also this thing too is like we talked about this before, but with um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that again, that scene with Edmund when he's the dragon, and mm-hmm. he has to keep using his claws to peel away layers and layers and layers of the dragon skin. It's so painful and it hurts him so bad. And eventually gets to the point where he's ripped off all the dragon flesh and he's just Edmund again. Mm -hmm. I wonder if judgment is, doesn't work like that sometimes where it's like, Mm -hmm. it's this painful process of peeling evil off of you to restore you to Edmund to be to be your human yeah. your full human self again but that's a pain can depending on the size of the dragon and the immensity of the scales that could be a really really painful process absolutely and yeah. it would really color the way we see judgment because we would see it as a smiting the way see, we the understand bible, it the bible would present that as mercy yes that's, when, god in, when god intervenes it's mercy when he abandons it's judgment mm. but 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 we'll get back to that in a second. That's a great point, Tim. So let's unpack this a little, maybe theologically, oh, shall we? Uh-oh. So so um, Jesus is the paradigm for what it is to be a human being. Yeah. And as we look at Jesus, um, he very he did not uh, manufacture enemies, and and anyone who would have been considered in Jewish terms his enemy. Jesus was very much open to whether it was a centurion whose suffering was or servant was suffering, whether it was a Gentile woman whose daughter was possessed. Uh, anytime he came around the Samaritan woman, anyone who would have been considered naturally outside of his sphere of care or kinship, Jesus almost made it a point if if they were willing to engage with them and extend status to them yeah. and acceptance to them. The, the ones who had the, he had the most affinity with, of course, the, some of the teachers of the law, the scribes, the religious leaders, he, he, they got very sharp words because they were convinced in their own righteousness, their own rightness before God. And so Jesus does the dragon thing there where mm-hmm. he has to expose you know, the hollowness of their righteousness before they will open themselves up to the rightness that he's proclaiming of the kingdom. And so, but, but in all senses, Jesus is acting redemptively. Yes. Now, Jesus is and says he will come back as judge. He even talks about that in Jerusalem. When you see the man, the son of man coming in the clouds and his angels with him, he will talk about the destruction of the Jerusalem and his judgment on this generation of sinners. So Jesus as judge, of course, is a motif but, but it's fascinating because the judgment that Jesus levies are all the upside down kind of judgments that, um, that reflect the upside down nature of the kingdom, right? The blessed, the ones are the meek and the poor in spirit and the peacekeepers and the merciful and the ones who are cursed are the ones who are self-righteously excluding the others from getting into the kingdom. Totally. Right. So, so even Jesus as judge takes on a vastly different color than what we would normally think of as judge. I mean, Jesus even tells parables about how scandalously gracious God is in terms of his, um, you know, he'll pay somebody that works a full day, a hundred bucks. And then somebody shows up in the last 15 minutes and and he'll pay them a hundred dollars too. And was he unjust? No, he kept his word to every worker that he would pay them a hundred dollars. Some workers just worked more 
and complained. And Jesus has this beautiful point of, well, it's, it's, it's the owner's money. He can do whatever he wants to. He's not unjust in showing mercy. Mm. And in fact, in uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the difference between the children of God versus the children of the world is exactly in their capacity to show mercy. If you only love those who love you, Jesus said, what is it? What good is that? Uh, even tax collectors do that. You know, if you only show love to people who show love to you, anybody can do that. But you go love your enemy, not wishing harm upon them. Love your enemy and do good to them. And in that way, you will be like children of your father in heaven. As the scriptures say, be merciful because he is merciful. Yeah, it's huge. So, so that, that teaching, and as it refracts through the practice of Jesus and life of Jesus, then shades the way that we understand everything before and after, yes. as it should. Yep. So do there seem like there are texts in the Old Testament where God is the bloodthirsty ancient Near Eastern king wanting to get drunk on the blood of his enemies? Yes. And the great debate is, are those the words of the humans or are yeah. those the words of God? And we've talked about that a lot in previous episodes. We won't revisit that territory again. But we will simply say this. That, the, that what revelation does, as we've talked about a couple of times now, is it takes the violent imagery of the day of the Lord motif, but it flips it around the one who's executing the day of the Lord is the lamb who was slain and who, who engages in the destruction and judgment of the nations through a sword coming out of his mouth, metaphorically through his word is the picture and that the army of God consists of those who've been martyred unto death. They've been faithful even into death and that they do no fighting. Jesus just shows up with his identity written on his robe and the word, whatever that word is. And there it is. Business is taken care of. But the, the, the fact that Jesus has a robe that's already been dipped in blood and we know from every other picture of Jesus in the book that it's his own blood, right? That what we get is this, this weird image, the subverting image of military imagery, violent imagery that's subverted now around a lamb that was slain. And it's done very much on purpose. So, so it, it, to a long, that's a long answer to simply say <laughs> well, it's a this. Sick question. It is a thick question, deserving of a, of a thick answer. Um, and by thick, we mean T-H-I-C-C, evidently, is how you spell thick. Um, that, that, the, that as children of Jesus, we never wish harm on our enemies. It is very human to do so. Absolutely. And what's great about the Psalms is that they allow God's people to cry out that way to God. Mm-hmm. Amazing. In every different way to cry out to God. It, that God's absolutely. big enough to take all that kind of yes. anger and sadness and yes. fear. God, and, would you just, I mean, and, and I think there are places where it would be right to say, God, would you, this, this, I mean, would it have been wrong to pray against Adolf Hitler? I don't think so. Well, and that's the right? thing too would, with your thing with the turn the other cheek, right? Like, so everything comes down to not being passive of being active 
And then we kind of took that and ran with apologetics or something like that, where we like, we're like, oh, okay, we, this is what active means. It means go out and um, <clears throat> pick fights or have go try to, you know, show people what, what they're doing wrong. But it seems like it is more about peacemaking, but sometimes peacemaking is forcing that hand to mm -hmm. smack you open-handed. Yeah. And that is, and that's, I don't know. So that, that, that seems to be a theme throughout so much of it. Do you think, so Jesus, remember him? He like uh, became a, 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 a lens for us to understand God, right? Like he was the Correct. full manifestation of God. Is Jesus also a lens for God to more understand us? That's a great question. Is that a two-way lens? Yeah. I don't know. That's a great question. I, I mean, in, in, in one sense, is there new information in the universe that God doesn't know yet? Was it experiential information? Yeah. I don't know. Because remember when Gombas, he was on one of our episodes and he was like, oh, um, um, uh, omnipotent, omnipresent, whatever. He's like, those words aren't even in the Bible. Like, you know, he started going <laughs> off about God being all knowing or all, um, I don't know. Some, yeah. It was like these kind of different, he was pushing all back powerful. a little bit on that language. Yeah. Well, I don't know. But well, I was certainly just. certainly are Greek terms. Yeah. And then the way that the Psalms are reflective, very human reflective. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I was thinking about the other day with, again, yeah. I brought this up the last four episodes with your conversation with Sky, but with those, <laughs> I think it's a really important <laughs> point and it, it reflects again here, the idea that the Old Testament might not be a full revelation of God, but that Jesus is. You're getting well, it's windows. A true, or, so yeah. I would say the Old Testament's a true revelation of God and Jesus treats it as such. Right. But I don't know that it's a full revelation, like yeah. you said. I think that's a good, I think that's a good distinction. Um, yeah, and this is all territory we've wandered around in for episodes, so we won't we won't spend any more time on it, except to say, man, what a phenomenal question! And I, I will try to be clearer that when I say judgment is good news, it's not good news. It would be like, um, let's say somebody. Um, uh, let's say, let's say someone close to me dies of cancer and, and then all of a sudden, and I, and so I hate in this kind of abstract way, I hate cancer. I yeah. want it to be crushed. This is the exact and destroyed. example I just had in my head before he said it. It's weird, dude. Some people say we share one brain Maybe. and it could be true. Could be true. Yep. Exactly. Do I want cancer to be destroyed? Yes. Because I hate what it does to God's image bearers. Mm -hmm. Do I want the image bearers destroyed? No. So I look at sin and death as principalities and powers that, that, that humans uh, conspire with mm -hmm. I, that me, I personally conspire with and, um, and, and there is much harm that is done. Yeah. Um, and so, so I yearn for the day when those things are destroyed. And as we'll see, it, it's funny, only, only the beasts and this great dragon are said to be tortured forever in the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. No one, no one, no human is ever said to be tortured forever. It's just interesting. Uh Oh, hot takes. I mean, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. So great stuff. Today, we are going to uh, make a, just a tiny bit of progress in Revelation <laughs> because we have to deal, and I don't think we have. If we have, I'm so sorry. 
But I, I don't think we've dealt with this idea of rapture. And one of the things that um, Revelation is known for is, is, at least in my circles, the dispensational sort of view has been, you know, the, its emphasis on the Great Tribulation, the rapture, the millennium, and the Antichrist. Yep. And um, it, it, it was shocking to me that Antichrist, that word is nowhere in Revelation, neither is the word rapture. Uh, millennium gets maybe six verses out of 400. Wild, um, wild. Yeah, yeah. So, so let our next. So, so we were talking last episode about these cycles of plagues and these like cycles of day of the Lord, and that there were these interludes about how the judgment didn't bring the nations to repentance, but the witness of the church will. So, I want to next episode deal with the witness of the church in the midst of these. But before we do, we have to at least I think argue that the, the the conception of the rapture that the church has left earth during this period mm. and is now exclusively in heaven, we, we, it doesn't mean people aren't coming to Jesus in this view. It just means that the, those that are already have been zapped up. Um, uh, I, I want to, I, you know, I mean, this is what I taught was in the Bible and this is what I was taught mattered. Um, and if you question this, you're sort of questioning everything. And then years ago, um, I don't remember how or where, but uh, I read I read an article by N.T. Wright that was like, hey, not sure that's the right way to approach this. And that spun me into this massive amount of looking at this going, all right, I don't think this is the way. But so much of my childhood as a child of the 80s was built around being always being ready. Yeah. Praying the prayer because you didn't want to go to hell, always Fire being insurance. ready, and 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 the Antichrist was was coming. I mean, it was the it was the European Union. I remember when that thing got together. My goodness, that was that made news. The first Gulf War in the nineties. I mean, that was biblical. I mean, and even I was scrolling um, Instagram and very well known pastors, some of whom I would like personally respect. Are just like, yep, it's heating up, guys. It's getting getting hot out there, and that's just not. It's not how this thing works, um, and it's not just Mike, you know, and Tim conspiracy theorists following you know Q somewhere making this stuff up. Like these are deep veins of scholarship that have been available for years and years and years, and uh, for some reason we just don't ever access them and take those veins of scholarship seriously, because I, I think the I don't know, the money's too good, the fear's too good, the control's oh, yeah. too good, or maybe we just don't even know there's another biblical option for this. So what I want to do today is I want to define the terms first. Secondly, I want to look at two major verses that um, give us, that are used to justify this idea and then read back into Revelation. And then that's going to set up the question, okay, so if the church is still on earth while all of this is happening, what's the role of the church? And that, the martyrs in heaven, clue us into the role of the church mm. in uh, the world. So that'll take the next two episodes. Are you with me? Yeah. Tribulation force, go. Go. First of all, let's talk about the rapture. The word means to carry off. And the rapture is that event where the faithful remnant of true Christians 
are taken bodily into the sky with the returning Jesus. So Jesus comes down, we join him in the air, and then he escorts us into the heavens. Sounds awesome. So that we, we, it does. So that we can escape the force of God's wrath poured out on mm. unbelievers down on the earth. Where did you read that from? What do you mean? That I don't know. These are just summaries I wrote down. Oh, look at you go. I mean, I'm sure I they're like from a somewhere. very well-formed definition. Well, remember that whole thing we just did about preparation and time and energy? Yeah. Oh, okay. That we actually, we actually spend time on this? Yeah. I mean, hopefully it sounds like it some days. Um, other days we just hit, we are like, oh, shoot, we need to put something out. That do you never want to talk about happens. Today, it never happens. All right. So that's the rapture. Then there is a period of time called the tribulation. And in, in, in the traditional kind of dispensational environment I grew up in, represented by the Left Behind series, the tribulation is the seven-year reign of the Antichrist. And never mind that numbers are symbolic, that we'll, we'll get to, you know, sevens and all of this crazy stuff. But it's a seven-year reign. The first three and a half years are good. And the second three and a half years, the Antichrist reveals himself and begins to persecute um, whatever remnant is left on earth of, you know, Christians. And so he almost claims, like he, he dedicates the temple to himself and claims divine prerogatives. And so there is, there is a lot of discussion about what's the, what's the relationship between the rapture and the tribulation. Does the rapture happen before the seven years? In which case that's called pre-trib. The church goes up with Jesus and misses the entire tribulation. Or you have something called mid-trib, where the rapture happens at the three and a half year mark, where, where the first three and a half years are okay, and then the second three and a half years, the Antichrist reveals himself, and then the church is raptured, so that the next three and a half years, where God's wrath is poured out, they miss that part. Yeah. Or is it post-trib, that the church is raptured after the seven years is up? So you have... You have, the, you have the rapture happening, and then where does it happen relative to the tribulation? It can happen at the beginning, middle, or end. Then we introduce a third term called the millennium. This is something we'll read about in chapter 20, and it, and it gets four verses, six verses, it, totally disproportionate to the American imagination around this, but it is the, the, the belief that Christ will return with his church and literally reign on the earth for a thousand years, okay, mm-hmm. with the saints. So, so you know, the tribulation happens, and then Jesus comes back with the saints, and they reign for a thousand years. Then there's this great battle called the Battle of Armageddon, when Satan is loosed back into the world and gathers an army, and then we finally defeat Satan, and then there's a great white judgment. That's kind of how I was always, you know, mm-hmm. it was always explained to me that way. Now, the, the millennium is that thousand-year period where Christ reigns with the saints on the earth. And the question is, well, what's the relationship between the rapture and tribulation and the millennium? So you have premillennial. This is what I was raised in. That the, the tribulation happens before the millennium. Right. And, and that can either be, you know, I was a mid-trib 
premillennial dispensationalist. So the rapture <laughs> happened in the middle of the tribulation and the tribulation happened before the millennium. That's a lot of All titles. Right? Yeah. It's a lot of titles. <laughs> so when does the rapture happen? Well, it could be at the beginning of the seven years, middle or end. What, when does that happen relative to the millennium? Well, it could be before the millennium or after the millennium, right? So you have pre-millennial and post-millennial. And, and then, then you have another view called ah-millennial. In other words, we're not talking about a physical reign at all of Jesus on the earth. Jesus already reigns. He says at the end of Matthew, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Yeah. He already reigns over the earth. And so what we're talking about is a kind of like spiritual, like now and not yet sort of reigning. And if I had to, you know, be placed in any of those, I would be placed there. I just think that there is no such thing as the millennium at all. Yeah. Uh, in terms of a thousand year period, I think thousand is symbolic. This is how apocalyptic literature works. We'll get there when we get there. All right. So that those set of concepts, rapture, tribulation, and millennium thrown together with the Antichrist cooks up this incredibly amazing stew of conspiracy theory and fear mongering and all those sorts of things. The rapture is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. It has to be read into it. So people will read a couple of different places into it um, that the church is now raptured. And they'll say typically that happens after Jesus talks to the first century church, the seven churches in Asia Minor. And then after this, I looked and I was told, you know, here's what must come after. And the rep that, that's when the rapture happened. Now the church is, you know, in heaven with God. And there are two New Testament, maybe more, but there, these are the two big ones that I know of that are used to justify rapture theology. All right? How are you hanging in there, Timothy? I love it. I love how convoluted it all is. Oh, it's beautiful. And, and it's actually one of the things that's, I mean, when you put the whole package together, like if we, if we could find somebody who came in and was just like, bro, let me just explain how simple this is. It's actually pretty airtight. I mean, once you grant the hermeneutical assumptions that they have to make about how you read Revelation, right? I mean, it, 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 they can they have a great kind of airtight sort of system if you grant all those assumptions, which is why we spent so much time questioning all, those assumptions. all of those assumptions before before well, I we love started. That when Jesus does things, it's always like, or just look at the Sermon on the Mount. We spent nineteen episodes on that, and how did it wrap up? He's like, so basically just this. Yeah. But he like yeah. tries to really like, yeah, yeah there's, there's, yeah. there's a lot to it, but it boils down to these simple ideas and he keeps hitting those. And then now yeah. it's like, are you pre, ah, uh, yeah. post? Totally disproportionate <laughs> to the amount of time Revelation talks about this. You just look at Jesus's words versus the Da Vinci code. Right. And just like this right. puzzle that you have to solve. And seriously. And we love that stuff yeah, as fun. Americans. We love it. Absolutely. It's entertaining. And, and that's why it feels so good to be, to be a teacher or preacher An who insider. has the secret knowledge. Yeah. Yep. Yep. yep totally. And what we're saying is, I don't think, I think the insider knowledge is there is no insider knowledge. You just actually have to have read your Old Testament. <laughs> right. Which turns out to be insider knowledge. Yeah. 
Well, and then, All right. does that frame Jesus so often being like, never mind, go ahead. Oh, I, I love where your brain was going there. I love it. But let's let's do let's do yeah. I just gotta get through these two. No, that texts. was gonna be a tangent, so Oh man. All I'm right. It. So, so the first one is from First Thessalonians. Let me read the whole Thessalonians. thing. First Thessalonians four. Let me read the whole thing and then we'll we'll look at some of the words. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So that you grieve, excuse me, so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus. <laughs> for we believe, man, I'm screwing this up. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So the, the Thessalonians are asking, what happens to the dead? Because mm -hmm. they're preaching, Jesus will, is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Great. But what happens to the dead? Mm -hmm. Paul says, they come with him, which is great news. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead will rise first. You don't have to worry about them. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. So it sounds like, I mean, just reading it in English, Hey, what happens to those who have died in Jesus? Don't worry, Paul says. Jesus died and rose again, and he's coming again, and he'll actually be bringing the dead with him. In fact, they will be the ones who will acknowledge his coming first. Mm -hmm. They will actually meet him in the sky, and after that, all of us will meet him in the sky too. And then we will be with him forever. And you're like, well, okay, it's in the air. I mean, it's up. So that totally makes sense. And, and you can see how you could look at that and go, oh, yeah, this seems like an event that is yet to have happened because everyone up until this point's died, um, where Jesus will come back with the dead in him and we'll all meet with him together and be together. Awesome. The issue, um, you know, not surprisingly, is, is that there... What, what appears often clear, really clear in English, isn't always clear that clear in Greek. And I know it's people hate this. I know people hate this. But it's like, listen, when I go traveling internationally, I went to the, you know, the Philippines years ago. What I don't do is demand that they talk in my language using my terms and my currency. You know, I don't just imperiously walk around saying, well, how come I can't pay you in dollars? No, yeah. You could, but I mean, you, you become a student of the culture in order to understand it. Yeah. And that's part of the humility of being a good traveler. Well, this is the same thing we have to do with the text, right? We, most of us don't know Greek, or if we know Greek, we don't know Greek the way they knew Greek. Right. And so there's just loads of work we got to do. So there are three words that are really at issue here. The first word is the word that we translate the coming in verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. 
Now that word is a form of the word parousia or parousia, but I like, I think it's parousia. It's how you pronounce it. And it, it's, it's, it's like the coming. Now in some places in the Bible, it, um, it means arrival just straight up like the arrival of the Lord. And that's an example there is in first Corinthians 16. The problem though, is the coming parousia um, or parousia actually has a more technical meaning that is much better here when we look at two other phrases that are used. So the three phrases we're going to look at paint a picture that if they were, if it was just one of the phrases by themselves, it wouldn't be as compelling, but because all three are used here, I think it's painting the exact opposite picture of what the rapture folks would have us, you know, have us believe. So the more technical meaning of Perusia is it is when it refers to the arrival of a dignitary visiting um, a vassal territory. So, so if a king is going to visit um, a, a conquered territory, that is called a parousia. And so one of the great examples of this is from um, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian in the first century. And I'm, so I'm just going to read a little bit here, but it'll give you the flavor of how the word was used. So, um, Alexander the Great visited Jerusalem in 332 BC. All right. Alexander had already conquered the other places in the region, Damascus, Sidon, Tyre, and he intended on passing through Judea on his way to Egypt. Jadis, the Jewish high priest, had previously refused a request from Alexander the Great for tax payments and supplies for his troops. So he didn't think Alexander was going to win and bet on the other guys. And as history knows, he bet wrong. So Alexander is now coming to Jerusalem to pay this high priest a visit. So the high priest who rebuffed Alexander years before, now getting paid a visit from Alexander the Great. Uh, Jadis, this high priest, had a dream indicating that he should adorn the city with wreaths and open the gates and go out and meet Alexander's party and that the people should be in white garments. Jadis acted according to his dreams as he prepared for the parousia of Alexander the Great. So here parousia is learned, is used as a arrival of a foreign dignitary. Um, and I think that's the way it's being used here for reasons we'll talk about, you know, in just a second. So the first word is the coming of the Lord, the Prussia of the Lord. It can, it just mean, can mean flatly arrival, but N.T. Wright and others make the case, um, that it's a technical term that means the arrival of a dignitary or yeah. a visiting benefactor, someone, someone who's superior and is being received. Now, the second phrase or word is, uh, this idea that will be caught up together. Um, so when, um, uh, in verse 17, Paul says, after that, we are still alive and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds caught up together is interesting because, um, air like air and clouds don't mean air and clouds whenever they're used regarding the second coming of Jesus. So when Jesus talks about coming on the clouds of heaven, yeah. That's a Daniel 7 image about the vindication of the Son of Man. 
Um, that doesn't mean literally look up at the white things in the sky. Um, when, when Paul talks about the air, he's talking about a sphere of authority. So in Ephesians 2, he talks about we are by nature slaves to the prince of the power in the air or of the air. And so air there doesn't mean Satan is the god of oxygen. Air means air is in reference to like authority over um, the uh, earth. So that Jesus would come and he would catch us up with him in the air means that Jesus is demonstrating his authority over the earth. And the word caught up here means to be seized or claimed Mm. as an owner would claim or seize property that is his. All right. So the picture is the owner coming back and claiming authority and possessions that were his previously. Make sense? Yeah. Over land that's been governed by other. Yes. Yes. And it totally fits with Jesus's parables about, yeah, a man went away, a, a king went away. And a vineyard owner, you know, was running the vineyard in his absence and was evil and blah, 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 yep. blah, blah. And the king came back and dealt with it. Yep. The third word, and this is the, the kicker, all right? This is the one where you're like, okay, the word is to meet. We will meet the Lord in the air. All right? Now, this Greek word um, is when um, a, it refers to a meeting outside of the city gates where a delegation would escort the dignitary back into the city. All right. So, um, a guy named, um, Gene green. All right. Yeah. Perfect name. (laughs) Um, he speaks for a lot of scholarship when he says this was almost a technical term that described the custom of sending a delegation outside the city to receive a dignitary who was on the way to town. Yeah. All right. So here, this is, so, so the first word is parousia. It can mean just the arrival, but it can also mean the arrival of a dignitary that you have to prepare to meet. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the dignitary has authority. So, so we meet him in the air or in the clouds. He claims or seizes those that are his in the air, the place of authority. And then thirdly, the word that is used to meet, that that delegation meets him in the air and then escorts him into their city. Yep. In other words, the, the picture that the Greek words paint is of a delegation that meets a king outside of their city and escorts the king into their city. So the picture I think that Thessalonians is painting is that the dead will rise and that those who are alive will meet Jesus in the sphere of authority, the air, and then escort him to the earth where he lives forever and ever. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, okay, great. No problem then. So you don't have to take my word for this. This this is all stuff you can look up online or um, in commentaries, Greek dictionaries. But it, it's just it, it's surprising um, that that we've we've leveraged uh, a couple of verses that turned out to be have other more like reasonable explanations into this whole weird American centric fear based theology. Well, you know, was it Plato that was like, hey, the written word's going to kill us all? Hey. Hey, guys. 
because uh, everything was oral. Like we all information was memorized and given to each other. And so he was like, I don't once know. you write it down, you're, it, we're going to become so dumb because we don't know anything that humanity is going to cease to exist. It was one of those guys. But it's funny because you can almost see that in here where it's like, I wonder how much of this, like, yeah, all the context came with it. Yeah. And then we just, exactly. we don't give these stories to each other. We don't, we don't yeah. hand this volume of information down generationally like it used to be. Then right. maybe now people just do open and they interpret a verse well, on face well, value and then build. But it's just, it's well, so how interesting. How could you not? We're told that's what we're to do. <laughs> right. Of course, I did this for you. I mean, yeah, open your Bible and read it devotionally. One of the most important ways you can grow in your relationship with Jesus. And that's true. Absolutely true. Um, and there is a overcorrection to that that says, no, oh, you you all need PhDs and, you know, right. we should never like have the Bible in the hands of You can of see where folk. people come to that conclusion also. Well, it's simply, um, I don't know that we've been taught well what the Bible is and how the Bible works. 100%. And so we're left reading it like we read everything yep. else. So so there is a, um, a New Testament parallel for this. When the crowds go out to receive Jesus as he's coming in for his triumphal entry, and then they escort him into the city. Like that's, it's not called a parousia, but that's kind of the picture mm -hmm. is that a whole city would turn out for a foreign dignitary, escort them back. They would meet them outside the city, escort them back into the city, throw a celebration to show them all was prepared. Mm -hmm. So I think what Paul's indicating is that the picture that we're going to get about the dead in Christ is that Jesus comes with them. Those of us who are alive meet him in the sphere of authority called the air he, as his, as his possession, and then escort him to the earth that has always been rightfully his. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the picture. Now there's another text about one being taken away and the other left. And this comes in Matthew and, it, and there's a parallel version in Mark and a smaller parallel version in Luke. So um, let me, and I'm going to read Matthew's version, but I'm going to reference Luke's version. Matthew 24 opens with Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, the sign of your coming in the end of the age is in direct reference to the destruction of the temple. It's not asking, hey, Jesus, when are you going to come and take us all to heaven? Or when, when is the rapture happening? The question is, they are like, hey, look how beautiful the temple is. Jesus is like, let me just tell you right now, guys, every one of these stones is going to be thrown down. And it's, and, and they're like, <laughs> what? And so they use the language available to them, which was the sign of your coming in the totally. end of the age. Yep. <laughs> so Jesus goes on and on painting pictures for them. And, um, he gets to verse 36 and, and this, I mean, this is such a cobweb of amazing things to talk about. But at the, at verse 36, he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, yeah. not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father as it was in the days of Noah, 
so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, we hear this and we instantly think we're talking about the second coming. That is not at all the context for what's G- what Jesus is talking about. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be on the, in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. All right. Total rapture right here. It's like, oh yeah, the days of Noah. And people, I mean, I just read, or I saw a, a guy literally on Instagram. I got to quit clicking on this stuff <laughs> saying, these are the days of Noah. So, first of all, Jesus is not talking about his return as Christians talk about it. He's talking about like the, the coming of the son, son of Man in the Daniel 7 sense in judgment over Jerusalem. All right? That happened when, like, when the, uh, the zealots picked a fight with Rome and there was a four-year uh, war that culminated in the utter destruction of the city. But notice here the parallel that Jesus draws. Let's say this was about us. For a second, notice the parallel that Jesus draws. He says, okay, it'll be just like it was in the days of Noah. Well, what were the days of Noah? Well, everyone was just living human life. And then all of a sudden, Noah entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen till the flood came and took them away. So is taking them away in the flood story a good thing or a bad thing? Bad. Correct taking them away means they were subject to judgment, mm. right? Mm-hmm. The ones who were left, Noah and his family were the ones that were shown grace and mercy. So when we use the, and Jesus then says, and this, it will be just like that. Like in the days of Noah, two men will be, you know, doing something. One will be taken and the other will be left. Our, our left behind folks say the left, the left behind one is the bad one, but the context and the parallel to Noah clearly suggests so that the, the left behind one is the blessed one yeah. and it's the taken one. That's the bad one. And when Rome did invade Israel, they would take people and crucify them on crosses, take them as slaves, do all of the horrible Roman things they would do. Yeah. Now I see the look in your eyes, Timothy. Before you get to whatever question is brewing behind that beautiful face, in case there's any doubt about this interpretation of Matthew, in Luke's account, Luke gives us one extra word. Um, And so in Luke 17, I tell you, Jesus says, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Our interpretation of Matthew is being taken is bad and being left is good. And that is absolutely what happens in the case of Noah too. Now, the disciples in Luke's version ask, where, Lord, where are they taken? Because he says, two men, um, uh, Two people will be in one bed. One will be taken. The other left. Where, Lord? Where? And then he replied, where there is a dead body, 
there the vultures will gather. Mm. <laughs> does that sound like heavenly bliss to you or does that sound like judgment? Yeah, it doesn't sound of great. Of course. It's a, it's, it's, a Jewish, it's a Jewish picture of judgment, an aphorism of judgment. Now, so, so I just want to suggest, not because I'm smart, but because there are people who are much smarter who've been shouting these things at American culture for years, that, that the rapture is one of the flimsiest pieces <laughs> of theology. <laughs> well, one of the most broadly used. Oh, and used for what? It's never used to comfort. Never. It's used, it's used to, well, I mean, well, comfort, yeah. I guess maybe in the sense, like the questioner asked about, well, yeah, isn't, isn't it great? We get out of here and we get totally. to watch all those unbelievers suffer. Yeah. So maybe comfort in that sense, but oh my Lord, I, I, I just think, and you know, I try, Tim, I try to be a uh, moderate because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man prone to hyperbole, but <laughs> The way revelation has been used to bring so much harm and fear, yeah. it really frosts my nuggets. <laughs> I don't even know what that is a picture of, but it, I'm, I'm, I don't think I've heard that one before. <laughs> I'm up, I'm upset, Tim. I'm upset that I wasted, <laughs> I wasted, I don't know, 10 years of my life believing this. And, and no one ever, I mean, no one that I knew ever saying, hey, maybe this isn't congruent with, you know, I'm just so bummed. And so, like we say, we say a whole bunch of things. Good theology doesn't save us. The goal of the Christian life is not good theology, but bad theology does harm us. Totally, so yeah. that's why theology, theology matters. But also... You don't have to agree. The goal of this whole podcast, we one of the best compliments we get from people, and I, and it's repeated so often we don't even <laughs> kind of notice it anymore, is people will email in and say, hey, l listen regularly, and I disagree with a lot of what you guys say. Yeah, That is the kindest, most thoughtful, and gentle compliment you can give us. Because the goal isn't that you would agree, right? I'm not trying to sell the Mike Erie, Tim Stafford version of Christianity, right? Who, who needs another version? Right. I mean, to some degree, we're all stuck with a version. I got that. But, but there is a sense in which if we can provoke curiosity yeah. and conversation and wonder and awe and, oh my goodness, maybe it's better than we thought. Like, that's the point. That's the point. Totally. And, and this book of the Bible has been so hijacked and so corrupted to do the exact opposite of that. Um, I, I just, I stand against that with like all that I've got, not because people are malicious or people are seeking to harm or any of those sorts of things, but rather because I, I, I think that for some reason we got it into our heads that the Bible is a code book and a rule book, and it can only be understood in this one way. And to doubt one piece of it means the whole thing's going to crumble. And I, I just don't. And, and, and so like, like we're doing at Journey, uh, the church where I'm a teaching pastor, we're doing the book of Genesis. And we're, we're like, we're three weeks in and we've gotten three words in, you know, or four <laughs> words in. And, and, and again, here's another piece of text that has so much ink spilled around it, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then when you look at it, I don't know that it in any way tries to answer any of the questions we keep pressing it for. Right. And, and what's true of Genesis and Revelation, I think, is often true of the whole Bible. That, that w- what we're bringing is a whole brand of American individualized Christianity to a text that is n- none of those things. And then wondering, well, how come it's not working? Or how come it isn't beautiful? Or how come God looks jacked up? Or right. why are people leaving? Because um, I don't know, I mean, at least for me, I don't know that I ever really encountered the real Jesus through all of this murk. No. I think he's big enough and good enough that he can yes. use it, of course. Hallelujah that he doesn't need perfect theology to reach us. But in another sense, I was never excited about following Jesus until I began to understand the broader picture of his humanity and the invitation of him and God and the spirit of followers of Jesus, you know, to participate in this incredible renewing work. Yeah, Jesus might not need perfect theology to meet us, but it's awfully helpful for us to have good theology to meet one another. And I think that's where we get so tripped up on. Hey, Tim. What? That's that's the smartest thing you have said (laughs) in the last five minutes. Well, I haven't said anything in the last five minutes. Exactly. There we go. We'll take it in balance. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) But we do, like, we... I, I re- like when I was a little kid, I used to pray all the time that Jesus would pull a fast one and just let everybody in and that we'd all get to the gate. And he's just like, you know what? I'm bigger than all of this. And I'm going to, and I, I forgive you. And you guys are all coming in. I used to pray that all the time when I was a little kid. Oh my goodness. And now when I see like, I, I don't think people are born evil, but I do think evil influences us nonstop. And so when you look at like exclusive, exclusive or ex- Theology that excludes other people. Exclusionary? Exclusionary theology. I don't know. I don't see Jesus in that. And it bugs me. And so this rapture stuff that we would kind of grew up in that like was fear-based, but is comforting to those that are sitting in the pews because like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We joined the right team. Like right. sucks for those guys right. outside, but we're on the ship. We're on the boat to flip that metaphor yeah. the wrong way. We're on the boat being... I don't know. I just think it's, and I just, I, and I love that. I am so thankful for the disciples for asking what seem to us now dumb questions, but for then were the exact right oh. questions to ask and to help clarify like theologies totally. and ideas that totally. like we need those disciples now that are asking those questions about our inherited mm-hmm, mm-hmm theology mm-hmm. so that we can so that jesus can kind of wipe the table clean and be like nope this is so that's like when you're right. like this is a mike and tim's new version of theology this is us trying to like clear all that junk out of the way to see what the real yeah to see what the truth even is. even recognizing that we can't like yeah we are we are we cannot transcend our cultural setting granted 100 <laughs> percent, or the limitations of our language yes but we can work to be more faithful at, at hearing the text the way it would have originally been heard. Yeah. And that, and that's, I mean, that's the goal, right? Big. And so, and so we want to walk this line between humbly receiving the text um, and, and holding things open. Like, I don't think the point is just conversation. Like I saw, Somebody uh, that we all know and respect was just talking about, you know, the the goal of theology is conversation. Mm. 
And, and in one sense, I agree. And in one sense, I disagree. In the sense I agree with is your just genius statement that theology, our theology matters in how we come at people and treat people. Man, that's true. So in that sense, a theology that leads the conversation is way better. But you also have this insistence by the authors of the Gospels, for instance, that there's something you can grab a hold of here that isn't yeah. just their opinion. Yep. You know, and 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 that once you grab a hold of it, it's worth hanging on to. Like it's the goal isn't just perpetual conversation. The goal is like leading to a place where you grab a hold uh, of Jesus in in you know non cliched ways. Um, and and I think you know that's the that's the the dance we we are always trying to do. We're always trying to leave room for all of the opinions and all of the harm and all of the takes that are out there and say yes, they're all welcome. Um, but but I, I think there's something to hang on to here. I think there's something to kind of you know to grasp a hold of that is worth grasping a hold of, and that I think leads us to better and further conversation, but from a different posture from a centered posture not always a bounded you know sort of posture or humble posture well that's the goal right if you really believe jesus is like this then how in the world could we go into any text thinking we've got it figured out at the beginning well is it in luke is the mil- don't tie it like the not causing kids to these children to stumble you'd be better to tie a millstone yeah matthew mark and luke i think are that have a bit of that and then when you were talking about like just some of this rapture theology or something that's i i started to feel like i was the kid in that scenario mm. and so much of the bad theology that i've used to harm people that has harmed me over the years that's the verse that popped in my head for some reason i was like mm-hmm. you should tie a millstone what you're what you're teaching the kids in these generations to harm other people you might as yeah. well like just go jump in the like get out of the way like <laughs> yeah. just be quiet yeah and I wonder if every generation of believers doesn't have their own way I'm as sure we correct is. and overcorrect. But no, I, I do think, you know, we don't want to overemphasize theology to the place where it's the, on, the only point is being right. And no one ever says that, but we certainly do act like it. Oh, yeah. And, um, and yet, I don't think we can minimize the harm it harm it does i love man what you just said bro is really really profound i'm gonna i'm gonna chew on that it it, it, theology doesn't good theology doesn't save us but bad theology harms us in how we approach each other right because because we we internalize whatever our view of god is right if if our god is you know a god of wrath and fire and whatever then man hallelujah that look at the people gonna get some of this well when you have a messiah complex that tends to both spill over in what you consider to be positive and what you consider to be negative. Like right. you bring, you are, you're now the harbinger of just of judgment as well as the harbinger yeah. of salvation. And it's like, you're not either. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because you could, you can, you can hear the judgment passages and I've done both of these. So one extreme is where you're like, dude, I don't even know if I'm in, like, I'm terrified. Like what good thing do I have to do? Oh, How yeah. many times do I have to pray the prayer? I'm terrified of not being in. Yeah. And then there's the other extreme of dude, I'm so in those freaking suckers. How could they not get this? Those damn atheists, right. you know, and whatever else they're going to get theirs and it's going to be awesome. And so there's the obsessing on me uh, when it comes to the judgment text. And then there's the obsessing on others. And then there's, 
I think where I'm at now, and I think where you're at now, is this like just deep and yearning hope that the evil that I see in me and outside of me will be dealt with finally once and for all. Yeah. And, and that somehow, in some way, because I'm a purveyor as well as a victim of that evil, that those of us who are all purveyors and victims can stand. You know, that's why that cancer after, is such a great example. And why, when you said it, like it was percolating in my head too, of like this thing that invades us and literally eats away our humanity yeah, and yep, eventually yep. brings death. So it's like cancers yeah. are kind of a great example for sin and death and that like weird, like, yeah. And you want that cut out. And sometimes that judgment or whatever is a really painful yeah thing but but the only thing lacking in that is if somebody killed so let's say a shooter shows up at seth's school and and shoots seth and other children there would be the cancer is too impersonal at that point Mm -hmm. now now there's a face and a name and then there would be faces and names around Congress people who've not acted and elected officials. Like my 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 hatred would be very personal at that point. Yeah, you know. Totally. And the capture the cancer the cancer analogy doesn't quite capture that. Yeah. Um. But the it it still is that how God feels. Um. Even when you get Cain. Your Abel's blood is crying from the ground. Yeah. He shows him mercy. Yeah. Like he comes to him and says, Cain, don't give in. It's just so, I don't, I don't well, get it. And that's the angry judgmental God that we all don't know how to deal with too or whatever. You know, that's very, that's early Old Testament well, we God. we prefer it. We would prefer it. <laughs> well, it's It's clearer that yeah, way. Totally. Yes, it's clearer that way. Absolutely. Mercy, I mean, and that's why Jesus' parables were so jacked. <laughs> is that they were just these unexpected rises of mercy where you should expect justice. And when justice did come, it was against the people who the world would say never are the blessed ones, you know? Mm-hmm. All right, we're out. <laughs> we could go on for hours. It's the never-ending nesting doll. Never-ending nesting doll. That's and our then, new band name. And then, and then. Hey, we love you guys. Thank you. <laughs> You're awesome. Seriously. People listening. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the goal is 12. <laughs> the goal is soul. Yeah. What are the th- one of the things, is that a movie reference? No. Bono used to say it playing uh, live when they played a specific song. They're opening the U2 uh, Vegas Sphere opens today. Mmm. Mmm. I got tickets in November. These... Oh look at you go awesome all right on that note that will be tim's thumbs up in november till next time folks <laughs> have a great rest of your week we'll see you try not to get raptured or maybe try yeah well thank you thank you thank you for listening to this conversation Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com/voxology.
You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology Podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.